Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, the big news was there's a new Elixir NX library or project that was launched. It started off with a tease from Jose Valim with a little graphic, a little logo again. But thankfully, we were spared from it being long and drawn out and becoming painful. <laughs> and it was just like a day later that the actual library is announced. So the library is called Explorer. The logo is like a little numbat in a spacesuit in like a Superman pose launching off. There was no clue as to what that was about. So when the Explorer library was launched and announced, it was described as a data frame library. And me, not being in the machine learning space, I didn't really know what that meant. That didn't mean anything to me. So we reached out to Christopher Granger, and he gave us a great explanation of what this is so we can share it with you. And saying that data frames are primarily in-memory tables, and you can think of them like SQL tables combined with elements of array processing. And they're powerful tools for manipulating data in analytics and ETL uses in operations that would be normally very slow for SQL. And he said the Elixir equivalent data structures like a list of maps. So it's a two-dimensional data structure. It's currently backed by Polar's, a Rust library, but it has pluggable backends. So it looks like it's something that can be grown and expanded and adapted to different uses. And for those of us not in the machine learning space, it's like, why is this relevant? How does this help us? And the super simplified version was, if you combine this with NX libraries, Explorer is like a super powerful spreadsheet. Oh, there's the keyword spreadsheet. Now we got everybody's business ears perked. I love spreadsheets. <laughs> Pivot tables, here we come. <laughs> but yeah, having spreadsheet kind of functionality in live view, if, you, if that's where you wanted to go, you know, having your collaborative editing spreadsheet, you know, Google Docs, here you come. Yeah, so we saw that there was a library called Mix Unused released recently. It's a compiler tracer for detecting unused public functions. So when I first saw this, I was like, wait, we already have like an unused. I put it in our CI to make sure that we don't have any unused dependencies. But no, this is like down to the module level. Like if you have a def P, it knows if it's being used or not and will give you a warning. But as soon as you take that P off the end, it's like, who knows? Even though it may not be used anywhere in your project, you'll never get a warning. So this kind of helps you in that sense where you can see if a public function is being used anywhere in your code base. So that's pretty cool. Tangentially to this, there's um, another code agnostic or language agnostic tool called unused, I think. I wonder how that would work in Elixir. I'd have to check it out. Uh, just a warning though, on this code analysis tool, it's not perfect. So anytime that you're doing dynamic calls, like apply on the module and the function and the arguments, like it's not going to catch that. But yeah. Still really cool. Hey, also in the news, PromX sees a new release. We're talking about 1.4. Good job, Alex. This release comes with uh, some new configuration. There's a configuration now where you can set a default time interval specified by the user, opposed to being hard-coded to 30 seconds. I imagine that's pretty useful. And there's also some new plugins and dashboards. Some of the plugins are plug.router. That looks useful. And plug cowboy. Also really useful. So I'm really excited to see the progress on Promax. I love these uh, set it and forget it kind of dashboards and consume those telemetry events that are coming more and more common to be baked into your your favorite libraries. So this is really nice. 
And next up, Rebar also got a new release. So Rebar is the Erlang build tool that Elixir also depends on. 3.17 was released by Fred Hebert. And in the release notes, it explains that it's primarily a bug fix release, but it does repair some prior broken builds of Elixir dependencies. So if you've hit that previously on an update, then this upgrade should help fix any of those issues you may have encountered. Last up, there was a little sneaky library that I noticed come through called Ecto Nested Change Set. And this kind of got my attention because if you ever had problems in live view doing like one to many relationships in the UI and trying to use change sets to maybe like nest those one to many relationships a couple of times, first of all, maybe don't ever do that. But second of all, that can be <laughs> really hard. And so there was a PR created in Ecto to add some functions to help with this sort of thing, managing these nested change sets. And Jose suggested that it start as a, as a library first to make sure that it's battle tested. And so they created a little library ecto nested change set so it's actually kind of interesting it gives you some functions like append at prepend at delete update at and all these all these little helpful functions to kind of like insert or remove changes inside of a change set in a nested fashion so this is kind of interesting there's a good example in there like a full-blown live view app where they're using this and they've got like has many pets and pets has many toys and all of these things in the ui and you can just flawlessly update remove add at any level so that's pretty cool I went through this with a friend and it was pretty hard. (laughs) (laughs) You had to go in there and surgically mess with like the changes values on a change set. And I imagine, yeah, with the dynamic forms like that live view helps us, you know, do now having a library like this to dynamically add more children, for example, that could be much easier with this library. I got to try that out. We've run into that before where there's issues where like, say you have a has many or embeds many and then you, it's sortable where the user can click and drag things around. Well, to get the sort right, you have to rebuild the entire embedded array just to get that insert right. And so little helper functions like this could go a long way to having to struggle with some of that yourself or write the equivalent of these little functions. So very cool. If that's something you've run into and something you're interested in, definitely check that out and see about contributing to it to see if that is something that will eventually make it into Ecto. And that's it for the news. Today, we're being joined by our special guest, Brom Verberg. Brom, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So I'm really happy you could come and join us on somewhat short notice too, because you recently had done some blog posts talking about a security potential vulnerability that was coming up for us in the Elixir and Erlang ecosystem. And this is all around the expiring certificate, the root CA, that is cross-signing the Let's encrypt certificate. So that can impact the beam systems. And we really want to make sure we understand this and we can appreciate what's affected, what's not, where are we safe, what do we have to do, just to make sure we're, we're all covered on our projects. And I'm glad you could join us to do that. But before we jump into all that, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about yourself. Like, where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? Okay, I live in Tel Aviv, Israel. I'm not a local, actually. I'm, I came here from the Netherlands. I work for a Swiss company building a payment solution, like a mobile payment platform for Austria and Germany. My job title is head of software security. So I mostly look at the software that we produce in-house and of course all the libraries and other tooling that we're using. So most of that is Elixir, at least on the the backend. And that means I get to spend a lot of time researching 
topics in this in this space. And over the last couple of years, I have spent a lot of time looking at Erlang's uh, SSL module. I've done a couple of talks about it, so I, this is has become not through voluntary choice of my own, but rather I kind of ended up digging into this quite a lot over the last few years. Let me make sure I heard it. So you're in Israel working for a Swiss company, building an app for Germany and Austria. That's about right. <laughs> That's I, multinational. That's amazing. I didn't even get into the, the locations where my co-workers are and their nationalities, <laughs> which doesn't line up with their locations either. So it's a very interesting crew. I remember when I was coming over to Elixir and Erlang, I remember thinking, oh, wow, this is different. This is like truly a platform because there's a lot of different quote applications already included. I remember when I when I was building Ruby, I, you'd always have to have like open SSL and open SSL would have bindings into Ruby. So I, I, I assume uh, that Ruby doesn't really have an SSL application built into it. It's just offloading into open SSL or whatever, you know, bindings that you can manage there. I think it's just that. But in Erlang and Elixir, it's its own application. You don't need open SSL per se, right? So it ships with its own thing. That's not entirely true. The, it it's oh, gets okay. a bit more complicated, especially historically. First of all, you do need OpenSSL okay. because under the hood, um, the low-level cryptography is still handled by the OpenSSL or SSL lib components. And you don't want to implement all that stuff in, in Erlang or Elixir because, you know, first of all, it's crypto, it's, it needs to be fast. And you want to use a, a proven implementation of these kind of protocols. Now, Erlang used to also basically delegate everything to OpenSSL. All the, the TLS handshake, all the state machine, all the certificate verification, everything used to be OpenSSL like in Ruby. The problem is that this didn't play very well with the Erlang scheduler. So the Erlang hand, or the SSL handshake, let's say TLS for the protocol and SSL for the module just to maybe keep those two things and not mix them up. It's a bit confusing because of Erlang's use of the, the old protocol name SSL, of course. So the SSL module used to just delegate everything to OpenSSL, and during a TLS handshake, that would block a scheduler, and, and some, some operations can really take quite a long time. And um, this was before dirty schedulers were a thing. So at some point, it was decided to actually implement the TLS state machine, all the message parsing, all the certificate verification in Erlang. And actually, Erlang is a very good choice for, for implementing protocols, right? I mean, uh, parsing binaries, um, doing network, like multiplex network interactions. It's, it's, it's very natural to do that in Erlang. It's just, it's, it's a big jump because you're entering into a space of, of, of TLS protocol implementations that is, it's normally handled by like a, a huge team of very experienced developers at the OpenSSL, uh, and the OpenSSL team. And to do a bespoke implementation, Basically, with two or three people in the Erlang OTP uh, core team, it's quite a leap. I think they did a very good job in implementing it and, and, and supporting the, the community with it. It's, it's, it's definitely not easy. There are, of course, hiccups. There are downsides, but it works pretty well most of the time. But yeah, it does mean that uh, since this is a bespoke implementation, sometimes the behavior of this implementation is a bit different from other platforms and therefore things that happen in the protocol space or in the in, in this case in the certificate authority space might affect us differently 
than the way they would affect someone who uses OpenSSL for everything. Wow. Okay. So thank you so much for fixing my mental model. So it's good to know that OpenSSL is still being used for a lot of uh, the heavy lifting, but we are re-implementing some of the protocol stuff in inside of Erlang. So I, I realize that you said that uh you know that your job has you uh, looking into this stuff um, a little bit more than than other folks. I'm curious. So how how long have you been using Elixir and Erlang? This is this just like a, the last five years kind of thing, or what's your history behind that? Erlang I've been using for more than 10 years now. I got started with it because I, I was using Ruby like you were, uh, but not so much professionally. It was mostly just you know, for scripting stuff. But I did end up at some point building a couple of long-running services using Rails or lower-level stuff using Event Machine. And I got frustrated with it because these things, they, didn't, they just didn't keep running or they didn't handle uh, load very well. And I felt like I had to like catch all the exceptions in order to keep this thing running because I didn't want the whole thing to come down when I had a small typo somewhere that caused an exception. So I, I actually lost interest in Ruby. I kind of didn't enjoy the way I did in the beginning. And so I, I, I kind of gave up on, on programming for a while. And, and then I, I came across the programming Erlang book on uh, of pragmatic programmers. Because, you know, you're looking for Ruby books, you go to pragmatic programmers. <laughs> so you come across it and you ignore it because it's a different language. So I suddenly found myself thinking, hey, maybe I should go back and have a look at that book. That looked really interesting. And so I learned Erlang. I loved it. So that rekindled my, my interest in, in programming. That was 10 years ago before Elixir uh, came out. And then I've used Elixir basically since the day it was launched. I, I remember 0.5 when it was made public. I thought, that's cool. I need to try to check this out. So I've been using it for well, nine years. I started contributing. I just checked the other day. I, I had a PR merged into Elixir 0.15.1. So I've been around. Yeah, I included some links to some conference talks that you've given. And you've been talking about Elixir security, and I remember having watched one of these before as well. But yeah, back in 2016. So yeah, you have been in this space contributing for a long time. So we appreciate that. But we would love to jump in and understand this particular topic and kind of what you understand and, and, and are advising for all of us who want to protect ourselves from this issue. So maybe you can give us a little bit of a background as to what is the current problem. If someone doesn't patch this, What's going to happen? What will they see? You mentioned in the introduction that this is a potential vulnerability. I mean, maybe that was teasing the audience a bit too much because at the end of the day, the worst that can happen is that suddenly your application will not be able to connect to certain destinations anymore. And this is technically just an availability problem, right? It's not like suddenly your um, connections are going to be attacked by a man-in-the-middle attacker. There are issues also with HTTP clients in particular in, in the Erlang um, and Elixir ecosystem that might leave your connections uh, susceptible to man-in-the-middle attacks. This particular issue with the cross-signed certificate might stop your application from connecting to certain destinations, in particular destinations servers that use Let's Encrypt uh, certificates. And the reason for that is a bit um, technical, and we can go into that, but... The bottom line is that if you're on the latest version of uh, OTP 24 or 23.3, so to be precise, that's 24.0.4 or later and 23.3.4.5 or later, 
then you should be fine thanks to a PR that was merged by the, the OTP team. If you're on older versions, either 24 or 23.3 versions prior to the versions I just mentioned, or if you're on pre-23.3, there may be issues depending on which clients you use. And it, it could be a package that you're using an HTTP client, or it could be your own code, or it could be some other client, MQTT. It's basically all clients could, are potentially affected. So as I understand what you're saying, then if I have my own website that I'm hosting and I'm using Let's Encrypt for my own certificate and someone's coming from Firefox or Safari or Chrome, are they going to have a problem connecting to my website at all? No. Awesome. So yay, I can check that box. <laughs> so then this sounds like it's a situation where my server or my Elixir client code is reaching out to another server that is using a Let's Encrypt certificate. And that's where if I don't have a patched version, I might hit this situation where it will deny the connection. Is that what's going to happen? Exactly. Yes. And remember, this, there could be all sorts of clients in your, in your application. Um, there is, um, for instance, uh, the time zone database needs to be fetched. Now, if you're using TZ data, that's fetched using ACNI. And ACNI is actually, I tested on various OTP versions and it connects successfully, even if you're on a, a pre-patch version. But it just shows that there, there may be HTTP clients or, or, or other, I should say, TLS clients in your application that you may only be vaguely aware of. Of course, there are HTTP clients that talk to APIs. There might be clients to talk to, to mail servers, uh, to um, operational systems like uh, you know, monitoring systems, uh, log reporting, crash reporting. It's quite hard in a complex system to really have a good grasp of which clients are in there and, and how do they configure the, the, the TLS? Which SSL module options do they use when they establish a connection? And how, what does that mean for this particular problem? Will, that, will this problem bite me or not? Yeah, that seems pretty complicated. You had mentioned earlier that dirty scheduling didn't exist at this time. And so I had this random question, which is, now that it does exist... Would it make any sense? You get where I'm going with this? And you're, you're not the first to, to ask this question, of course. Um, it's, and in fact, there, there are alternative uh, implementations out there. I, I came across one the other day um, based on a, a, a Rust. I think this is actually a, 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 an HTTP client in Rust that's basically wrapped with an Erlang API and it uses dirty schedulers for anything that won't complete within, within milliseconds. And because the Rust implementation is basically just OpenSSL, or I, I don't know actually what, what, who, who manages the state machine there, but it is a perhaps more proven implementation. And there is something to be said for, for looking at maybe replacing the SSL application for something like that. The qu problem is that in many cases, it's not really up to you, right? If you're bringing in some package that gives you an API to talk to, I don't know, some Google service and under the hood that is using an HTTP client and that HTTP client uses Erlang's SSL module, you can't just swap that out. So in any non-trivial application, you might already be using two or three different HTTP clients, probably all of them using Erlang's SSL, but each of them with different SSL options and therefore potentially behaving differently when even talking to the same endpoint. That's like my least favorite part of how HTTP clients came about in Elixir. You're never just using one. <laughs> you're, you're probably using two or three. 
in your uh, application. Right, and you you might even be using more than one certificate store. Like there's two packages on Hex, Certify and CA Store. And depending on your the HTTP clients that you're using, you might even have both of them installed in your in your application, which is also a bit unfortunate. So that Rust library that you mentioned, is that Earl Quest? Yes, exactly. Okay. I've seen a few libraries lately coming out where they kind of make the HTTP library pluggable. And this is probably a topic in and of itself, but I kind of like that pattern because I don't like how I have like every single HTTP client available out there in my app because every library developer you know, has a preference for a different client library. And now I have every single one. You don't even have that many dependencies and you already have every single one. So I kind of like the idea of of making these like dependencies like HTTP clients pluggable. There was once uh, an attempt to, or a plan to make an HTTP client part of the Elixir standard library. I mean, there is one in the Erlang standard library and unfortunately, it, historically, it, it hasn't been very well maintained and a lot of people don't quite like the API it provides, and that's why then people started developing their own, either in Erlang or in Elixir, or wrappers around the Erlang library in Elixir. So Mint was originally intended to become part of the Elixir standard library, but eventually it was decided not to go ahead with that plan. So then it's like the XKCD comic, right? So <laughs> there were there were five choices, and now there are ten, and now there's another one. Yep. Yeah, I kind of remember that. I, I had forgotten that Mint was destined for standard library in, in Elixir, but they decided against that. I don't think I even knew that, so that's kind of interesting to know. I can agree, though, the HTTPC is kind of hard to use, but since sometimes I'm like a stickler when I'm doing things, I'm like, no, I'm not going to bring in an HTTP library. But it's like you said, like all of these dependencies, you've already brought it in like 10 times over, so <laughs> I guess it doesn't really matter at that point. Well, I want to get back to a little bit of the, well, now I, now I don't know whether to call it a vulnerability, but the issue that that, that was at hand, you know, about um, about certificates and cross-signing them. So I want to revisit something you said that Mark had a scenario. If if my server was pre-patched and if I don't do anything and my server just is just sitting there and a browser tries to hit me up with this certificate, everything will still work. Is that because browsers have generally been patched or is that because... It's just not exploiting what the issue is in the certificate. Is it? Are the browsers have kind of like figured it out how to how to avoid the issue? No. So the the issue is fundamentally about some lack of specification in the TLS RFCs in particular, and the OTP team's reluctance to loosen up the certificate verification logic unless you can point to a specific line in the RFC that says that they should. And as a result, sometimes the SSL application is a bit more strict than browsers or other open SSL-based implementations when it comes to verifying a certificate chain. In particular, SSL application tends to only look at the longest chain it can find. So it looks at the, the certificates that the server sends starting with the server's own certificate, which has the host name in it, and then any intermediate CA certificates that are typically also sent by the server. And then at the end of that chain, it tries to find a matching root certificate in its own trust store that will complete the chain. So a lot of other implementations, as they are building the chain, starting from the server's certificate, as soon as they recognize 
a certificate as having been signed by a certificate it already trusts, it will stop the process. And okay, I, if I trust this certificate, it's in my trust store, and it issued the CA certificate and it issued the server certificate, then I'm done. I don't need to look any further and I can ignore whatever else the server sent me. And that's not how Erlang's uh, SSL application works. It looks at everything the server sends and then it tries to look for a, a matching entry in its trust store. And in the, this case, Let's Encrypt is doing something kind of unusual in order to work around an issue with old Android devices. And when they tested this workaround, they noticed that actually this doesn't interfere with other clients, modern clients, browsers, operating systems, uh, other clients in other languages. They are fine with it because of the way these clients build or, or, or verify the, the server certificates. It's only the specific implementation of, of Erlang's SSL that basically trips on, on this, this longer chain that the, the, the server now sends. And because Let's Encrypt is being used so widely and it gets automatic, automatically gets reconfigured, right? If you renew your certificate every, every 90 days, you renew your Let's Encrypt certificate. Suddenly, a few months ago, they started providing a longer certificate chain. And these longer chains are now everywhere. I noticed this a little a while ago that they had this plan and I thought, oh, this could trip over Erlang's SSL. Let's try a few things. And I noticed that there were definitely circumstances where connections that previously worked stopped working once this longer chain was being um, sent by the server. So the patch that is in the newer versions of OTP, the latest 23 and latest 24, is that adjusting the behavior to stop at the trusted cert or is that like a one-off for handling Let's Encrypt? I forget the exact implementation. Uh, effectively, that's what it does. Um, I think it basically backtracks. So it first starts by building the longest chain and then it will also consider alternatives if it can find them. So the, the logic might still be a bit different from the... And, and again, because the TLS specification doesn't define this rigorously. So implementations are free to implement their own logic as long as they all kind of agree what certificates should or should not be trusted. And like I said, that has been a bit contentious, I guess. So now the, the SSL application, as of this latest patch, handles a, a wider range of scenarios that other clients already handled in this, this way. They would trust this certificate. In a lot of clients, HTTP clients and other TLS clients, previously had to use a, a hook called a partial chain. This is an option that you can pass to SSL.connect to give you a chance to nominate another trusted certificate. So if Erlang's SSL fails to verify the long chain, it will give you the long chain in that hook, and then you can, can look at it yourself and say, ah, but there is a certificate here in the middle that has been signed by one of the trusted CA certificates, and, there, and then you can nominate that one instead. And then it will continue with its normal uh, chain verification. And so that, that's called partial chain handling. And most TLS clients in Erlang, or at least the, the HTTP packages that do the right thing, such as Mint and Hackney, they have this partial chain hook. And that one won't be necessary going forward because now 23.3 and 24 started handling the partial chain, basically, or the shorter chain natively. So I would love to switch and get some more perspective that you have just being in this space for some time. But before we do, I just want to make sure it's clear the action that everyone needs to take is to just review your different 
Elixir and Erlang applications, because you've made that excellent point of we have lots of different things in our applications that might be making outbound requests that we're not even thinking about, not even that we didn't write ourselves, that it's just probably safest to just be on the latest version of 23, OTP 23 and OTP 24, and just get on the latest version. So the issue might be if you have a really old Elixir or Erlang application that's on an older version, and it might require some more work to get up to date, like with resolving issues. So that's the thing that you'd need to be focusing on is just getting up to the latest version of those. Is that the right advice for people? Yeah, so I think if if you are on 23.3 or 24.0, stepping up to the latest patch is probably not too much work, right? It, it won't break anything else, <laughs> will it? I mean, hopefully. <laughs> don't, don't sue me if it does. But um, I can imagine if you're on pre, uh, if you're on 23.2 or 23.1 for, for whatever reason, there must be a reason why you're you're holding back. So in that case, it, you may not be able to push this out quickly before the. Uh, end of September. So in that case, the good news is that as long as you have this DST root certificate, the, we didn't really talk about the, the, the technicalities of, of which, which certificates are involved and why Let's Encrypt is doing what they're doing. But basically, there is a, um, a root certificate that was once widely used. It's called DST, and it's expiring at the end of September. But as long as, as this certificate still exists in your see a trust store, then on 23.2 and older, you're, you'll be okay. Because interestingly, only 23.3 of Erlang OTP or the SSL application, it started looking at the expiry dates of the root certificate. If it's in your trust store, previous versions, let's say 23.2, didn't really care. If you decided to choose to trust a CA certificate that has already, the expiry date has passed, well, that's your choice. I mean, you should remove it from your trust store if you don't trust it anymore. That is also the way um, those old Android clients work that Let's Encrypt is trying to continue to support. Those old Android clients do not have the new root certificate that uh, Let's Encrypt is using. And so this was the only way to keep them going, to serve up the longer chain that is chained to an expired root certificate. And on Erlang OTP 23.2 or earlier, this would have been fine. It's only 23.3 or later that actually say, oh, you can't use this root certificate, it's expired. And, and because it doesn't then look for an alternative, that's why connections fail. So bottom line, if you're on 23.3 or 24, upgrade to the latest patch. If you're pre-23.3, maybe just don't upgrade your Certify and your CA store hex packages. If you're keeping the old packages with the CA certificates, including the old DST certificate that has expired, your connections will still work. And that buys you some time to then upgrade to 23.3 or to 24. I want to reiterate that last point there. Freeze your dependencies to buy time to upgrade <laughs> if you're on an older version of OTP, uh, like 22 or, or younger or uh, older rather. So freeze your dependencies and then still upgrade to OTP 24 and OTP 23. <laughs> Just keep things fresh. <laughs> Don't make things harder on yourself. Yeah, it gets more complicated because there's also the behavior depends also on the on the client that you're using, and, and as we discussed, so um, there's a there's a new version. Well, I, I, there's a P, I made a PR on Mint, and it got merged. I don't know if by the time this goes out, the a new package version has been published, but so that would be another potential uh, potential fix. 
And, and one other thing I wanted to point out is that uh, this this affects production environment. It affects CI/CD as well. Okay, don't uh, don't forget about other environments where you where your application might be running. I looked also at Hex and Mix, for example, and Rebar because um, they also use HTTPS to fetch packages and, and do other things. Of course, in, in, in practice, they are not really affected because the, the Hex server, the Hex repository server, doesn't use a Let's Encrypt certificate. But if you're using a mirror, for example, then potentially it could use a Let's Encrypt certificate and then things might break. That may be a too obscure scenario to, to <laughs> really worry about. <laughs> I just want to make sure I point you, dear listener, to the resources that we're going to have linked in the show notes for this, because Brom has put together a, a, a two blog posts in particular, where he goes into a lot of detail and depth on the issue to fully understand it, and also the different patched versions that are available and things like that. So if it's something you really want to dig into and really kind of get a better understanding of, definitely check out his resources there. Excellent stuff. I just wanted to point out too, like the not upgrading or delaying the upgrade is also hard too, because it's like, I was just upgrading absinthe of all packages the other day and somewhere in there it required Finch and Finch required CA store. So guess what? When I upgraded absinthe, CA store got upgraded. So it's like, <laughs> it's just a chain of dependencies. It's going to be so hard. If you can't upgrade, you just have to like, nothing can upgrade. It's all or nothing, right? Because something somewhere down the chain is going to upgrade your CA store for you. <laughs> I think that might be because it's the default behavior, right? You can still lock it. Yeah, but All right. <laughs> then what's going to happen? Right, it should be fairly safe to lock it because these trust yeah. store packages, they, it's not like they have an API that changes from one version to the next. The only, ch- the only thing that changes is the list of certificates that they serve up. So if you, if you lock it in your top-level mix file... Um, to a specific version, it shouldn't really break anything. Okay, that's cool. See, I wouldn't. I had no idea what CA store is. I know <laughs> nothing, so I would have not felt comfortable doing that. But if that's all it is, then that's great. <laughs> well, it, it, you probably shouldn't uh, lock your your CA trust store on an old version, uh, at least not indefinitely, because then you end up uh, for, like if if some root certificate is found to be compromised, you want to pick up the latest version. Otherwise, you might be susceptible to certain attacks. So yeah, I don't don't recommend uh, locking your CA trust store to an old version. But if you're on pre-23.3 and you have no other way to move forward in the next couple of days, then maybe that's an interim solution. Well, while we have you here, I wanted to get your perspective because you've been working from the security perspective for a long time in this space. And I'm sure you get asked a lot of questions just repeatedly over time. And I was wondering if there are any ones that you can kind of head off now. So if we say, hey, if you want to reach out to, and, and ask any questions, you can just head off now and say, answer some of those most commonly asked questions that you get. Like, what would that be? Staying on the topic of SSL, people often ask if, if it's actually a good idea to use SSL at all. And maybe, um, especially when it comes to terminating incoming traffic, uh, whether to put Nginx in front of the application or a load balancer. And that's that's a fair fair question. Um, there's there's reasons why you might want to deploy a load balancer like beyond just TLS termination. Obviously, they're asking me should should you should I maybe avoid using Erlang's SSL to terminate the TLS? I don't really uh, go around recommending people to do one thing either way. I I realize that there are pros and cons either way. Um, like we talked about it a bit, and the the, the fact that it's a bespoke implementation has a big downside, which is that there's fewer eyes on the code. 
some vulnerabilities uh, slip through. There was one uh, back in December, which where a new version of OTP came out that actually was susceptible to man-in-the-middle attacks, and that was fixed in January because of the holidays. Um, that, which that, that, you 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 want to avoid these kind of situations, of course, and this is one that was found, but the, the, the question is which other vulnerabilities are in there that, that were never found. And on the other side of the story, of course, the fact that it is a bit more obscure implementation also means that attackers might not be out there like searching for, for vulnerabilities. Let's just say if a vulnerability in OpenSSL is found, you can be sure that some some script kiddies are going to just scan the whole internet and, and try and find ports that are uh, vulnerable to this particular vulnerability. And they might not be successful with an, an, an Erlang OTP implementation because it's not OpenSSL based. For example, Heartbleed. Okay? Heartbleed was a famous OpenSSL vulnerability that could leak the private key because of a buffer overflow. That's not going to happen in the SSL implementation in Erlang OTP because there is no such thing as a buffer overflow in a language with the memory management that Erlang OTP does. Of course, under the hood, somewhere deep down, there is still um, C code and, and, and manual memory management, but most of that has been thoroughly tested by now. And, and so I, I wouldn't worry too much about like these kind of... Um, low-level memory management issues on in the TLS protocol because they wouldn't really apply to Erlang OTP. At some point, it becomes an issue of compliance. If you're in a, some big multinational company and, uh, and, and, and there's a process in place that rigorously defines which OpenSSL versions you're allowed to use, which TLS implementations you're about, uh, allowed to use, then you, you might not have much choice. You might be, and, and maybe you're better off using Nginx or something in front of your application. And then when an OpenSSL vulnerability is announced, you just patch along with everyone else. Problem is that it doesn't really help you on, on the client side, right? On the client side, you don't have much choice. You can't really offload the TLS client side to an external um, proxy. You could, you can, like with, uh, like you use something like Istio. As a, as a service mesh, then you could delegate the TLS handling to, to, the, to this external uh, system. But in practice, most people, I guess, use the, the Erlang SSL implementation for all the client-side interactions. Well, thank you, Brom, for coming in and helping us to have a deeper dive on this, to make sure we understand it so that we can speak coherently about it and just know that, yeah, this is what, even if the, the takeaway is just, this is what I need to do. If I'm on OTP 23 or 24, I just need to be on the latest version. But then there was some nuance about 23.3 versus like 23.2. So there, there is some detail there that if you're on that edge, you have different options. So yes, check out your blog posts so you can fully understand, like if you're dealing with legacy projects that aren't fully up to date yet, so yes, like you said, you can just uh, just patch your OTP installation and move on. But I, I think maybe this is an opportunity to tell people that you know the fact that you are relying on this SSL application is probably something you should be aware of, and maybe you should dive a little deeper into it. Learn learn how it works. Learn what are its peculiarities. It's nice when you can treat security as a black box and someone else worries about it, but 
it's not always the case, right? It's it, it, as an application developer, you are in the, venture, in the end you are responsible for the entire package, the whole thing that you're delivering to your customer or that your customers are trusting you with when, when you're you know, hosting a service for them. And the SSL application, like I said, it has its peculiarities, and you need to be aware of the, the potential pitfalls and. I spoke about this in conferences. I wrote, write about it in my blog, and I would really encourage people to at least look into it a bit and, and get familiar with it. Maybe play around with it a bit with the SSL options, just in a in an IEX shell, and see how how this uh, different options affect the security and and like security. It, it, it's often. It gets tricky because the security can be, um, you can make a system very, very secure, but completely unusable. Or you can make a system very, very easy to use, but then throw all the security out the window. And the, the, the question is to, to find like the, the thin line that works, that people can st- still use it and it, it will be secure enough by default and people won't shoot themselves in the foot with it. And unfortunately, a lot of people just kind of ignore the SSL application and, and they let the, like even the HTTP libraries, they kind of let the users pass the SSL options, right? If you're using Hackney or, no, Hackney has, has its own defaults, but if you're passing in any, of your, any SSL options of your own, then it's completely up to you. You have to pass in all the, the, the right SSL options to make it secure. And by default, that might mean you're not even checking the server certificate if you didn't tell SSL to do that. So there are usability issues here. And and unfortunately, people do shoot themselves in the foot with the SSL application or the HTTP libraries that are built on top of it. And so it does require a little bit more familiarity, awareness. Um, So that's one of the reasons why I agreed to come on on the show to spread the word. I'd love to go that into that some more, but unfortunately, I think we're running out of time. So I'll, I'll ask you that question via another question. If I'm an Elixir developer, I probably have like five or six clients to use. Which one do you use and why should I use it? <laughs> I use Hackney most of the time, but I this warning I just gave you about Hackney uh, overriding its SSL options, a lot of people, I think, have been bitten by this. Yeah. And that's why I... What I like better is the um, is Mint and, and Finch because Mint and Finch or Mint as the lower layer that provides the connectivity for Finch, it merges the SSL options into the secure defaults that it uses itself. And it's harder to shoot yourself in the foot with, with Mint. Using Mint directly has some other issues because it's, it doesn't have a process model, so you have to do work a little harder to use it. So that's why Finch is, is nice. So if I if I start something new now, I, I would prefer to use Finch. Cool. And there's lots of other great options out there too. So just having that recommendation doesn't mean that the other ones are bad. But uh, good to know. Other HTTP clients are available. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As we've discussed before, yes. And, and probably already in your project. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, thank you, Brahm, for talking with us. If people want to follow you online or just be aware of what you're doing, maybe they have a follow-up question. What's the best way to get in touch with you or follow you? I have a blog, um, blog.volton.net. Uh, if, when I post there, um, I usually post a link on Twitter, at Voltones, with the Z at the end. And on GitHub, I'm Volton. And maybe you might uh, catch me at one of the conferences one of these days. All right. Well, thank you so much. But that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.